Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on the book of Esther. You know, I wanted to do a study on this book because I think it's one of the truly most interesting and yet overlooked books of the Bible. In fact, most of us have probably never heard a sermon on Esther or know very little about who she was and why her story is even in the Bible. So my goal is that in these next three podcasts, you'll have a greater understanding of just how awesome this story is and you'll appreciate why it was included in the Bible even though God's name is not mentioned, not even once. And we even get a cool Jewish holiday because of this story. Do you know which one? Stay tuned. The book of Esther is found in our Old Testament, right after Nehemiah and right before Job. In our Christian Bible, it's the last of what we call the historical books. We don't know who the author is, but the story was written somewhere around 470 BC. And it recounts events that happened to a remnant of Jews who didn't return to Jerusalem after they had been in Babylonian captivity. So the actual events take place around 479 BC. And it's in an area called Susa, which was one of the capital cities of the ancient Persian Empire. And check out my map on studentofthebible.com to find out where this is. After the Assyrians had conquered Babylon under Cyrus the Great, many of the Jews were allowed to return to Israel so that they could rebuild the temple, but not all the Jews who were captured returned to Israel. We don't know the exact number that stayed behind, but it was a large number, maybe as large as 80,000 or even more, because most records indicate that more stayed behind in Babylon than returned to Israel. And for those that stayed, a Jewish community flourished, and this is Iraq we're talking about, for more than 2,000 years. In fact, up until Israel became a state in 1948, there were still over 100,000 Jews living in Iraq. However, as of 2020, sadly, there's only about six adults who identify themselves as Jewish in Baghdad. As we study Esther, we will learn that Honestly, if it wasn't for the bravery of this young woman and her uncle Mordecai, it's quite possible that almost the entire Jewish race would have been erased. And what's so remarkable about this story is that God is going to use two exiled Israelites, just normal, ordinary people, Mordecai and Esther, to rescue his people from certain doom. And that's without any explicit mention of God or his activity, but I guarantee you're going to see it throughout. 
So let's begin. As I said, the story is set in Susa, which is one of the Persian capitals. And this is during the reign of King Xerxes I. His reign is 486 to about 464 BC. As I said, some of the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, but others like the characters in our story, Esther and Mordecai, they're still in exile. But as a minority group, this group of Jews is often going to be viewed with suspicion, and sometimes they're going to face threats to their existence, as we're going to learn in this story. Let's take a look at Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is going to give us our geographical and historical reference for this story. Quote, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Xerxes is known historically as one of the greatest Persian kings. And he actually wrote this about himself. I, Xerxes, the great king, thou only king, the king of this entire earth far and near, unquote. Very humble, as you can tell. Herodotus, a Greek historian, he wrote this about Xerxes. He said he was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings. I wonder if he really was or if he felt some pressure to write that. Oh, well. Anyway, he goes on and he said he was ambitious, ruthless, and jealous. And then one recorded event says that King Xerxes tried to seduce his sister-in-law. She refused his advances, and as a result, he later had her and her husband, which was his own brother, tortured to death. So he, he's truly a lovely person. So we start this story with the king throwing this 180-day-long extravaganza. And the background story is that he's actually going to plan an invasion of Greece. And so he wants to intimidate by demonstrating his great power and wealth. And historically, Persian kings love to flaunt their wealth, even to the point of wearing jewels in their beards. Do you think that's a trend that'll catch on? I hope not. All right, Esther, chapter one, starting at verse five through nine. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyr, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, 
each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palaces of King Xerxes, end quote. So we have a picture of his wealth, and now we're introduced to Queen Vashti. We also learned that guests were given the freedom to drink as much as they wanted, and so you can picture how out of control these parties could get. But it gets worse. Esther chapter 1, starting at verse 10. On the seventh day, so remember, they've been partying and drinking hard for six days. This is the seventh day. When King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Bitha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger." Unquote. From what we know about ancient kings, they're used to getting their own way. And women certainly were not encouraged to voice their own opinions. And this may be one of the earliest recorded stories of women fighting for their rights. But of course, Queen Vashti refused at the risk of great personal peril. Her refusal has placed the king in a really difficult situation. And so he makes a decree because if it was perceived that he didn't even have control over his own wife, he would then be assumed to be weak in battle. And remember, he's readying himself to invade Greece. It was feared that the queen's actions would then become known to all the women and empower them to disrespect their husbands. So therefore, he decreed that Queen Vashti could never enter the king's presence again and that she would be replaced with someone else. It also included a phrase that was to be sent out on all the kingdom that every man should be ruler over his own household. Because the Persian king was thought to be a god, when he issued a decree, it stood forever. The law could never be canceled, even if it was ill-advised. The only way to rectify the situation was to issue a new law to neutralize the effects of the old law. I want you to remember this fact because we will revisit this again later in our story. Well, what does the king do next? Of course, he holds a beauty pageant. They're going to search the kingdom for suitable virgins to replace the queen. So commissioners were appointed to go out into all the land in search of beautiful young virgins who would be taken from their homes to become part of the king's harem. The king's eunuch would be placed in charge of them and they would all get a free makeover treatment. Now, if you're not familiar with this idea of eunuchs, they're actually mentioned quite a few times in the Bible. A eunuch was an advisor to the king who has been, sorry to say, castrated 
to prevent them from having children and therefore rebelling and trying to establish their own dynasty. Subsequently, they were often placed in charge of the harems because they weren't really seen as a threat. Now, in chapter two, we're introduced to this Jew named Mordecai and an orphan girl in his care named Esther. Her Jewish name is Hadassah. And we learn Esther's parents are dead and she was taken in by her uncle Mordecai. And Mordecai and Esther live in Susa during the reign of King Xerxes. And remember that she, along with her relatives, are Jews that have chosen to stay behind in Babylon after the exile. The Bible tells us that Esther was chosen along with many other young girls, probably numbering in the hundreds, and she's taken to the palace. Remember also, this is an edict handed down from the most powerful ruler in the world. This partition in the harem was not voluntary. It's not like an audition for the bachelor. Esther and these women were at the mercy of a pagan ruler, not an option to refuse to go. Women in this culture had very little to say about their marital futures. Remember, this is 470 BC. Esther, upon being taken, we learn has been commanded by her guardian, Uncle Mordecai, to not reveal her Jewish heritage or to talk about her family. This will play out later, so remember that. Now, according to Esther chapter 1, verse 9, Esther pleases the unit Haggai and, quote, gains kindness, unquote. Gaining kindness is something she is doing rather than something being done to her. The text is interpreted by Bible scholars to imply that Esther has some real good social skills and an ability to impress people, not basing everything solely on her good looks. And this is significant because the Bible tells us Esther found such favor with everyone she encounters. And in the context of a harem of hundreds of women, it's hard to believe that this was a result of just her good looks alone because, of course, all these women are beautiful. So we're not sure why Esther befriends the eunuchs or why she found favor in the eyes of so many. Maybe she was manipulative. Perhaps she had a good sense of humor to go along with those good looks. Or maybe, maybe she was just kind, especially to the eunuchs who, like her, had been taken and used by the king. Well, here's a life truth. Sometimes powerlessness makes people bitter and angry, but sometimes it makes them compassionate and kind. Regardless, this alliance with Haggai is gonna turn out to be really critical for he helps Esther prepare for her night with the king and he ensures that she's properly cared for and properly fed, even providing her seven hand-selected maids to help her. Now, here's a bit of foreshadowing. We're going to see that Esther's favor with the eunuchs is going to be critical in her efforts to save the Jews. And here's the Bible truth. 
God will often use the powerless to shame the powerful. The Bible tells us that before a girl could appear before the king, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. <laughs> wow! So, once paraded before the king, the young girl would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her, and then he would summon her by name. Esther, when it was her turn, she is advised by this eunuch, Haggai, as to what to wear and what to say. And, you know, as I was reading this, I actually couldn't help thinking about Cinna, the stylist played by Lenny Kravitz in The Hunger Games, how he, like, completely advised her. Well, anyway, it worked. Haggai told her what to wear, how to act, what to say. She finds favor with the king and is crowned queen. Now, before we go too much further, let's remember that the king has been scorned by the previous queen Vashti's assertiveness, so we're going to assume he's going to keep an even tighter reign on his new queen. And so even though Esther has been made queen, the king still has his harem, and it appears from the Bible that the king doesn't actually see his queen very often. And when he does see her, she has very few rights. She'll truly be at his beck and call. So now we have Esther on the throne. Let's learn what's going on with Uncle Mordecai. So we turn to Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot, and he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Yikes! All this was recorded in the book in the annals and the presence of the king. Now, that's important to remember. Just hold on to the fact that that was recorded. Already we've seen how important it has been for Esther to have been placed on the throne and for her uncle Mordecai to continue to have this very close relationship with her. We also see that Esther definitely has honored her uncle's wishes, and she bravely approached the king with this news. She also gave the credit to her uncle for the news, and as I said, this event was recorded, and that will be important later. Now, 
We're introduced at this point to the antagonist in the story. He is a very evil man named Haman. And when this story is read aloud, many Jewish children will actually boo when his name is mentioned. So feel free. (laughs) Haman is honored by King Xerxes. We don't know what he did, but the Bible tells us he's honored and he's elevated to a higher seat of honor than all the other nobles. And then the king orders that everyone at the king's gate has to kneel down before Haman and pay him honor. But Mordecai, who is at the gate, refuses to do this. And when asked why he refused to do this, he explains that he is a Jew. Then we read in Esther chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, end quote. So we're starting to see a bit of how evil Haman is. And Haman's anger is not just directed at Mordecai, but at what Mordecai stood for. The Jews' dedication to God is the only authority worthy of reverence. So here's what Haman does. He decides to cast lots called Pur, to select the day and the time for this massacre that he's planning. Now again, here's some foreshadowing. Don't forget the Hebrew word for casting the lot, Pur, because you're going to hear that again later. The date that these die cast comes out to be one year from now. And this again is God's providence, because Now they're going to have a lot of time to prevent this event. So now Haman goes to the king with his great idea. And this is in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people. They don't obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please, end quote. Now, as I told you before, decrees written by kings cannot be reversed. Dispatchers were sent to all of the provinces with the decree sealed by the king's own signet ring to, quote, destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, 
the thirteenth day of the twelfth month of Adar. A signet ring was a personal signature. It was an actual ring, and the surface had a raised imprint, and that could be metal, wood, bone, silver, or probably in this case, gold. And each individual had his own imprint. And so you would have letters or documents that would be sealed by having some wax dripped on them and then pressing the ring into the wax, certifying the document. Did you notice that King Xerxes gave Haman his signet ring? This basically meant he was giving Haman his personal signature and therefore authority to do whatever he wanted. Remember at this point, the king has no idea that Esther, his queen, is Jewish. Mordecai hears of the news because it's spreading quickly throughout the kingdom. And when he hears it, he tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now, this was typically done as a sign of mourning. They would often put on something called sackcloth, which was goat hair, and it's just this kind of baggy clothing and super scratchy and uncomfortable. And then they would sit in a pile of ashes. The ashes would signify desolation and ruin. So this is what Uncle Mordecai did and when he heard the news and he's parading himself in front of the king's gate. Esther finds out about her uncle's bizarre behavior from the eunuchs and her handmaids and she doesn't really understand what's going on, so she sends him some fresh clothes to put on. Well, of course, Mordecai refuses the clothes, and he keeps on mourning. And Esther's really confused, so she directs one of her eunuchs to find out, okay, what the heck is going on with Uncle Mordecai? And then Mordecai explains to the eunuch everything that's going on, including he hands the eunuch a copy of the decree so that he can then hand it to Esther so that she'll understand what's going on. And then Mordecai also says, Esther needs to plea her case before the king. And he told the eunuch that Esther has to beg for mercy before the king and plead with him for her people. And so, this is now Esther's response to the eunuch. So you can see how important this role is that the eunuch is having to play back and forth. And this is in Esther chapter 4, starting at verse 10. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and then spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but 
you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Okay, I've left you at a cliffhanger. But before we end today's lesson, let's review what we've learned. First, while the book of Esther does not explicitly mention God's name, we're going to see over the next few lessons that God's divine providence is evident throughout the story. It's God's divine ability to work through humans that has placed, unbeknownst to the king, a Jewess named Esther as his queen. She and her uncle Mordecai are going to play a tremendous role in securing the future of the Jews. You know, many people have no problem believing that God is in charge of the big things that happen in the world. But they assume God won't trouble himself with the seemingly mundane events of our day-to-day -day lives. However, that understanding is not supported by scripture. For God, there are no unimportant events. He doesn't need to conserve his strength because his power is limitless. His attention is never divided. Look, if the Lord God tracks every sparrow, as we learn in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, nothing is too small for his attention. And that includes who sits on the throne. Now that's something positive to think about this week.